Welcome to I See What You Mean, a podcast about how to get on the same page or don't, or perhaps shouldn't. Today, my guest is Megan Gerhardt. Megan's a professor of management and leadership at the Farmer School of Business at Miami University and the author of Gentelligence, which we're going to discuss today. Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Let's start with a short bio about yourself. Sure. So as you mentioned, I am a professor of leadership at Miami University in the Farmer School of Business, and that's been my job for last 20 years or so. But then I have also really been passionate about researching and speaking in the area of generational diversity and trying to reframe the conversation we're having around the power of different ages and the experience and expertise that generational diversity can bring to the workplace. Excellent. Well, there's so much to talk about in your research and the book. Let's start with this. I'm going to make a prediction. I looked up Gentelligence on dictionary.com and it isn't there. But I'm going to predict that on July 1st, 2023, a year from today, it's in dictionary.com. You've coined a term, which I think is a perfect term for what you've researched and what, what people could do right, to sort of harness the power of generations. And I think it's going to get, I think it's going to get defined. I think spell check's still going to tell me I'm spelling it wrong when I type it in, but I think it's going to get to diction. It still tells me that, Lou, after I wrote the book. I finally had to reprogram it. Exactly. telling me that. I'm sure you were tired of looking at the red squiggly line. Tell me where the concept came from. So as I mentioned, I began my career as a professor almost 20 years ago. So I was had just turned 26 years old, which is relatively young um, to be starting as a faculty member. And so I really think that was probably the origin point of this this idea for Mm. me. I began when I was much closer in age to many of my students than most of my colleagues. So while I was learning a lot from my older colleagues, as most of us do, getting lots of advice, great mentoring, I found myself very naturally turning to my students for input and uh, advice and answers to questions. It was a very natural strategy for me. They were almost your closer cohort at that age. They were. They were at that age, yes. So, and, and, And I learned so much. It wasn't a stretch for me. And what I realized was that the learning was just as rich, but, but very different, mm-hmm. right? The nature of the input was very different in that direction. And so as I continued to go about my career... Um, it was a strategy that I continued to utilize. And I was so fascinated. You know, my, my background is in organizational psychology. That's mm-hmm. what my degree is in. Mm-hmm. And so really just fascinated on how do we elevate learning? How do we leverage individual differences to create higher levels of performance? Those were all my areas of general sure. interest. And I thought, you know, the way that's working for me is having this this resource in every direction in terms of different experiences, different kinds of expertise. It was very clear to me sort of standing in between those two Mm -hmm. different age groups that there was so much potential. And I, I started to do research on it and then sort of at the same time began to get calls from industry when this is when our millennials were first moving into the workplace people saying, can you please come talk to us about mm-hmm. what to do about these millennials? You know, they were making everyone tear their hair out and, and it was just seen as this big source of frustration. And so I thought, well, how interesting. I want to go and, and see how other people are learning from the younger generation or how the younger generation is embracing learning from older people. Mm. And, and, and that was not happening, Lou. That was not mm-hmm. the, the vibe that was going on out there. It wasn't being viewed as this great opportunity. It was being really viewed as as something negative and frustrating. And so Gentelligence 
really stemmed from the work I've been doing for probably close to 15 years now, seriously, about how do we get smarter about this? Why don't we see age and generation as a form of diversity the same way we view race and gender and and ethnicity and all of those wonderful kinds of difference? Mm -hmm. For some reason, we have this missing link when it comes to age. So I thought that's, that's fascinating that we, this is the kind of diversity every organization has, yet we're not talking about it. We're not leveraging it. At best, we're just getting frustrated by it. How do we change that conversation into something positive? And how do we create an opportunity out of what we're seeing as a threat? And so the term intelligence, um, I'm glad that you had that reaction. My hope <laughs> is that when people hear it, they yeah. immediately understand what it means. Sure. So that's, that's really where it came from. And it probably wasn't many years. I, I didn't think about generational diversity the way you wrote about it until I read what you wrote. I'm 61. It isn't like I wasn't, it wasn't in front of me. It was in front of me. But I just didn't think about it as like, well, yeah, of course. We'll get into this, but you think about what it means to be part of a generation, the things that influence you generationally, what you see, how you think about what you see, right? And if that varies by generations, it's a huge source of of diverse thought. And possibly, this is part of your point, potentially a lot of knowledge and a lot of power within a team or within an organization. But I think you hit the, the nail on the head when you said, We've got four or five generations that are coming together in workplaces. We're missing something. We're missing an opportunity. So, you know, the show is called I See What You Mean. It's about how the aha moment that sometimes gets us on the same page. Thinking about and talking about generations in the workplace offers a lot to get on the same page about. Tell us, tell us how you define gentelligence. I think the, the word's very suggestive of what it means, but how you define it, and then we'll go from there. I define it as a collaborative kind of intelligence, mm -hmm. the potential that lies in intergenerational learning and collaboration, and the opportunity that sits with understanding that every generation has something to teach as well as something to learn. So it's about changing the way we're having the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's about a more positive, constructive frame, and it's also about the idea that we need to be collaborating rather than competing when we're thinking about people mm -hmm. across those generational uh, gaps. Mm -hmm. I like that. A collaborative intelligence. Uh, are you familiar with the knowledge illusion, why we never think alone? I don't think so. I'll write it down. It, it's, it's written by a couple of scholars. And what they say, what they claim in the book is that knowledge is actually shared. So when you said collaborative intelligence, that, that came to my mind because to me, what I think of when I read your work is an emergent property from the conversations. If you talk across generations intelligently, right, if you talk productively across generations, things come out of that that perhaps wouldn't have come from people of the same generation talking to one another. So right. talking across them, something comes out of it, that's highly collaborative it's it's almost the you know it's part of the the sort of the essence of what it means to be collaborative and it's creative right yes there's a creativity in that and probably a lot of juice you tell a lot of stories in the book which i like about the the, the work you do with some organizations and it can be very inspiring when you, you like you're having a conversation maybe you've led the conversation maybe you haven't but when people have that aha moment and they realize they can collaborate and not compete and there's kind of a flow of energy that comes. Now, tell me if you haven't, 
if you don't see it that way. That's how I've experienced these kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the important thing there is that it can be that way, but often it isn't, right? And that's what we are, we're trying to, to change. So the research shows, there's not a lot, surprisingly, of, of mm-hmm. research on multi-generational workplaces mm-hmm. and sort of the, the pitfalls and the opportunities. But what is out there is very well done. And if we leave people to their own devices, and you obviously are hiring people across ages and generations, it will actually end up being more likely frustrating and and full of conflict and miscommunication for a couple of reasons. And one is that we tend to do what's called age polarization Mm -hmm. at work. So we tend to gravitate towards people we perceive to be quote, like us. Mm -hmm. Um, That's human nature, right? Of course, lots of research to support that. And one very visible sign of that is of course, age as well as sort of your age cohort. So people that are probably moving into the organization around the same time as you tend to not always, but tend to be similar in age group to you. And so those are the people, if you look at your closest work colleagues, they tend to be relatively close in age to you. And so It doesn't happen naturally that we're working closely and intentionally with people who are substantially older or younger unless someone or our organization has proactively taken steps to make that happen. And so if we just leave people to their own devices, we don't get that meaningful interaction and we end up getting, you know, sort of the things we stereotypically associate with generational conflict, stereotypes, biases, generalizations. So what I love and, and what you know, of course, as an academic, but then also as a consultant, you know, I want to keep my foot in both both worlds Mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. that's supported by research, but practically, we also see this happening, is not only can we decrease the tension and frustration and sort of neutralize that, but if we have a proactive strategy, we can actually not only neutralize it, but reverse it. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is we can get, as you said, that innovation, multi-generational, multi-age workplaces that have a proactive strategy that are managing that kind of diversity well, you see the same results you would find with other kinds of diversity. Mm -hmm. So for example, lower turnover. So right now with the great resignation, right? Doesn't matter, you know, talent across all ages is going to be more likely to stay if they feel their contribution, their perspective, their experience is valued and appreciated. Mm-hmm. Uh, greater innovation, better adaptability to change, higher performance, uh, higher engagement, better team performance, all mm-hmm. those sort of wish list things for organizations. Yeah. But we have to actually have a strategy. We can't just assume it's going to work itself out. Good point. I like that. Autopilot, we know where that takes us. I want to ask you also, though, to define or describe what a generation is. You do very well in the book. For those who haven't so, read the book yet, <laughs> how would you describe right, it? Right, yet. Thank you. That's the key word. Um, so a generation is a social construction, of course, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. something that we've created to help us make sense. And, and at its core, it's a group of people that grow up in a common period of time. So roughly 15 to 20 years here in the U.S. is how we, we tend to define a generation. There are all kinds of different formative events that Mm. we use to help determine the cut points of a generation. And it is more art than science sometimes. So it's this idea of growing up in a common period of time with a group of people. You experience really substantial, whether it's social, cultural, political, economic events or forces during this, what we call formative phase Mm -hmm. of your life. Mm -hmm. So age maybe five to, to 20. And we know that if you experience something during that sort of 
formative phase, it will have a much stronger effect on you, your attitudes, your behavior, the rest of your life than if you experience it, you know, when you're 40 or when you're Mm -hmm. 60. Mm -hmm. And so we look at that phase and we say, what are the formative events that unify or that we can point to that really mark a generation? And then we create this idea of this cohort. And so you know, a great example would be, uh, so the, the pandemic has affected us mm-hmm. all. Uh, if we take Gen Z, who were born 1997 to roughly 2012, we're, we're still kind of waiting to get the cut date on that. This is largely the generation whose education was disrupted by COVID, mm-hmm. right? We had a few of our older Gen Z that had maybe just put their foot into the workplace. But for the most part, these were kids who were sent home from school and spent the next year plus learning in their house, Mm -hmm. right? That's a huge formative event. Of course, we all were impacted by COVID, but having that be what marked your childhood will have a more profound effect on the way they see the world, their place in it, their their comfort with risk, their level of independence, all of those things. And of course, not to mention the management and leadership shift we're seeing now about what does it actually even mean to go to work will completely redefine what opportunities and, and how work really is present in their lives. So a generation, I always say, is is a layer of your identity. Mm-hmm. And and I really have pushed hard in my work to try to avoid stereotypes. Mm-hmm. So I never claim that a generation is going to describe everyone born in a 15 right. or 20 year period of time. It's one layer of your identity. And right. what I mean by that is it's not everything, but it's not nothing. So of course, we're going to take your generation, but we're also going to take your age, which is connected, but separate. You could be an older or younger baby boomer, right. for example. Right. You could be an older Gen Z that had just started your first job when the pandemic hit, or you could have been nine. Right. Right. So that's very right. different. Right. Um, but then also things like gender and race and, and cultural identity. Yes. Yes, so yes. globally, generations mean something different. So I was doing a workshop recently where a friend of mine who does DE&I said, you know, you could look at it as a comma, not a period. Mm-hmm. So your generation and then everything else together forms your world perspective. But that's really what we're talking about. And I think where, where it hits us the most in the workplace is we have common needs across all mm-hmm. ages, mm-hmm. right? We all want to be respected. We all have a need to be connected, et cetera, et cetera. But what generations do is it, it marks how norms change over time. So what does it mean? What does success mean to me as a right. Gen Xer as compared to what it meant to my parents who are baby boomers? Right. Right. That could be something fundamentally different. Right. You said generations experience such things, respect, competence, autonomy. But and what I thought was generations express that in, in somewhat unique ways. It doesn't mean there's a hard line between them or a wall between them, but they could express that in different ways, which is, like you said, left to our own devices, we could scorn those differences or we could want to, you know, sort of squash those differences. But if we look at it a different way, and a lot of what you talk about is a mindset shift. Right. And I think if you, so you know, I know you always want to leave your listeners with something actionable. And and, and I think that's one of the things where, where we get caught up on is, maybe we see an, a behavior mm-hmm. and to us it seems wrong or inappropriate mm-hmm. or confusing. And so our immediate reaction, right? Sort of our, our human reaction mm-hmm. is to judge that is inappropriate or wrong. Mm-hmm. And if we can take a step back from that and say, well, 
I'm I'm looking at that through my own mm-hmm. lens. Is there another way to evaluate it? That's one of the tools we give in the book. Yes, so, you know, it, for me, like a great parallel is if you're traveling to a, a place you've never been before, you're traveling to another culture or mm-hmm. country, mm-hmm. you might see a behavior and it would strike you as rude or inappropriate or strange, but only because you don't actually understand it, sure. right? But but sure. as you're there longer, as you ask questions or you do research, you begin to understand that maybe it means something entirely different than what you thought. Yeah. And so if, if we think about generations as a different kind of culture, it's very helpful in saying, oh, if I could use that same mindset or yes. put the same amount of work into saying, and so the tool I love to tell people, which is very easy, is to, you know, when you're hit by something that you don't understand and you feel yourself coming into judgment, you know, just saying, can you help me understand? Right. Right. So even something as simple as like you're at a meeting and a bunch of your younger colleagues take out laptops. Right. This happens to me. I'm 45. I love my laptop. I'm all about technology. But when I see my students take out laptops in a meeting or in class, I still have this inherent sort of negative reaction, like, hello, we're having a meeting, like, why are your laptops out? And so, and this is what I do for a living, right? So I I will say, like, help me understand what the laptops are for. Like, I'm not saying they can't have them, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm letting them know that I need more context. And of course, they'll say, oh, I'm I'm on a Google Doc, I'm taking minutes, I'll share them with everybody. And then suddenly, it's not a problem anymore, right? So substitute your sort of confusing generational moment there and 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 just ask like can you help me understand because i'm sure people will be more than happy to to provide you know some context it's a very human thing to do about generations about gender about race it doesn't matter about family members you know we, we have we're wired and we just have reactions i love the phrase you use though coming into judgment Sometimes it comes more quickly than others, but you can, if you're paying attention to yourself, you can feel it come on. Mm-hmm. You tell a lot of stories sure. about this. You tell a great story about the, I think it was a medical setting, doctors and and uh, maybe young interns or residents taking out their phones. And yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like the story you just told, which is they weren't, they weren't making dinner reservations. <laughs> they weren't, they weren't, you know, looking at TikTok. They were looking things up because that's the device that they use, that they grew up with. They were taking notes on it. They were looking things up. And you told a story of like about whoever it was that was leading that conversation in a, I think it was in a hospital room. And yeah, so it was a, yeah, exactly. It was a nursing manager who <laughs> was just expressing, I had given out some scenarios just for discussion. And, and she was just very stuck on the idea that um, patients were coming in to meetings. You know, you always see that sign on the wall, please do not use your cell phone when in here with that. <laughs> right, right. You know, I should take a picture of that next time I'm in the doctor's office. But <laughs> she said they do. They take this out. It's so rude. You know, they're not paying attention. It's so rude was like the immediate conclusion. And so that was when, you know, I just said, okay, well, the phones are out, but we, we just – you know, we have these practices, as you mentioned in the book, and the first one is identify assumptions. So immediately yes. her assumption was phone means rude, distracting, not paying attention. Not paying attention. Right, right. And she didn't realize that she no, had gone from like we don't. zero to 60 on that really quickly. And and it was her colleagues that I sort of in, engaged to help her in the second practice there is that we use in the book is adjust your lens, right? Is it possible that you could, you're, you, there's a different way to see this yes. that would lead to a different conclusion, yes. right? And, and so 
it was great for her to just sort of, even if she nudged just a little bit, you know, that she still didn't like it. But the fact that it never occurred to her that somebody might be taking notes on their phone because she doesn't take notes on her phone. No. Right. And, and, and it's just those little nudges, I think, that can get us closer to at least neutralizing some of the frustration we feel on this. Well, the point is what we're talking about is so fundamental to how our brains work and to human processing and behavior that we're talking about in the context of generations, but it's, it, it, it's, it's without context. It happens all the time. And so to be aware of it is the first step to doing anything about it. You can do nothing if you want, but to be aware of it at least gives you the chance to um, gain some different understanding. Let's talk about the four practices. You call them four practices of gentelligence. And you organize them into two, two twos, which I think is really smart. Breaking down barriers to interrational, intergenerational tension and bias, and then building up uh, capacity, you call it capacity to leverage the intergenerational strength and power. So, and breaking down barriers, there's what you just said, resist assumptions, and we're talking about being aware of your own. Um, and adjust, yes, being adjust aware of your own. Mm-hmm. Right. So just a couple more things on those first two and then, then definitely can move to the next ones. But, you know, I, I think identifying and resisting assumptions, it is the things like one of the tools we suggest is an assumption audit. So that's something yeah, you it's can a great... do even, you know, we're going, um, you know, if you're around family this summer and, you know, it's not just at the workplace. I know no, that's what we're talking about. But, but, you know, even across, you know, your holiday dinner table or whatever it Absolutely. is. Absolutely you know, what assumptions or automatic sort of bias do you feel yourself having when you see behavior that doesn't make sense to you, right? And it can be older or younger, right, that you're sort of jumping to these conclusions in yourself and or in other people. But then the other thing, Lou, that's been really interesting as I've had these conversations over the last year is, is identifying and resisting assumptions is about staying away from stereotypes, but it's also about being aware that you might be assuming other people are interpreting things the same way. Very much so. So right now I'm having a lot of conversations with leaders about how does everyone that works for you define flexibility or balance, right? So if we are even just doing a return to work strategy, everybody's sort of biggest challenge right now, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. If we say we want to give our, our employees flexibility, Mm -hmm. Well, what does that mean to somebody who's 25 versus someone who's 55, right? And if we assume everybody has a common understanding and definition, we're wrong. So kind of, you know, you you can hit it in terms of stereotypes, but also in terms of what am I assuming everyone sees the same way I do, which gets us into that second practice of adjusting the lens. Yes. And even if you just pause and say, I'm really curious, when I say the word flexibility, what do you hear? (laughs) Yeah, right. Or, you know, when we talk about trying to make sure everybody has balance, what is, what does balance look like for you right now? Yeah. Um, Or I was on a call yesterday with an organization who's really struggling with parency. Mm -hmm. So the fact that an older, older generation um, that tends to be in more senior leadership at this company, transparency means something very different for them than it means to their youngest workers. And so they've, they've kind of, hit some walls around that. So that's, that's the idea of those first two is, is let's figure out where we're miscommunicating, where we're getting wires crossed, where we're assuming things that with a little bit more time and effort might be relatively easy to clear up. So whether it's a, 
help me understand or tell me what this means to you? Is there another way to think about this? I love the question too. Like, what do you think the biggest stereotypes are about your generation? Mm -hmm. Like imagine asking a baby boomer and a Gen Z that Mm -hmm. conversation, Mm -hmm. right? At your summer picnic or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. It's just, it's fascinating to see. So those would be the first two, right? And, and, And hopefully through those, we break down some of that tension. We're at a neutral, but that doesn't mean we're actually leveraging or benefiting from from that diversity and so the second two are about how do we do that Mm -hmm. in the third practice there we talk about strengthening trust Mm -hmm. so if we're kind of caught in this us versus them mentality that we're somehow in competition right in the workplace like younger people taking jobs from older people or older people standing in the way of younger people having opportunities or, or whatever it might happen to be there's not a lot of trust there, right? Instead, we're all operating from sort of a position of threat. I wrote a piece that came out last week in NBC about, and I know it'll be a little later once this airs, but it was about the pilot shortage, which all of us oh, yeah. traveled this summer are feeling, right? And it was about whether mandatory retirement ages should still exist in any profession. And of course they do when it comes to commercial airline pilots. It's more asking the question. I don't know that I have an answer, but it was really saying, is this about safety exclusively or is it about wanting to make sure younger pilots have opportunities? You know, and it was a very interesting thing to research. And if we're all operating from a, you know, they have all kinds of problems to solve in the travel industry right now. But if if everybody's not trusting that they're all on the same team, right? That they're all on a shared mission. I think, you know, the the focus of your podcast, right, is about mm. sort of, you know, what getting on the same page. So what's our shared goal? Right. Because if you believe that the older and younger people you work with have a shared mission or goal with you, that we're all here for the same purpose, it becomes less threatening to be open to different ways of getting there, right? Because mm-hmm. maybe that's not the way I would get there, but as long as I feel confident that you you know our end destination, mm-hmm. I'm a little less frightened that that your approach doesn't look the way my approach does. So, so strengthening trust is about building that psychological safety. It's making people mm-hmm. feel, often for older people, it's making them feel safe to ask questions right? That they don't have to know everything that they're open. They can, they can be open to learning from younger people and for younger people that they're allowed to have input, that they're allowed to have voice, that they're not going to be viewed as entitled because they are contributing a a perspective or an idea. Um, So that's the third practice, strengthening trust. And my, my go-to tool for that one that can be used, you know, next week when you go to work is sort of laying out as a leader, younger or older, Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, this is our goal. Like, can we all agree that we're here to to do X, right? And get everybody sort of looking in the same direction. And then the go-to strategy I love is to say, how would you do that? Mm -hmm. Right? And if I ask that question to a 20-year-old student in my class, or I ask it to a 70-year-old colleague, I'm going to learn something. And there's a difference between asking for input right. and letting them just make the decision. Like that, that's been really fascinating because I think we're afraid if we ask for input, the perception is going to be we're handing over the keys. And, and that's not what we're doing. We're saying, I'm interested in your approach and perspective. Yeah. I want to learn from you. And this magical thing happens, Lou. So if I say to a 20 year old, Okay, so we're all here to create this amazing new program. Would love to hear your thoughts on how you would do that. 
So suddenly they have voice, right? They feel seen, they feel heard, they feel respected. I'm going to learn something, right? It might not be, you know, a, a well polished idea. Mm. It might need all kinds of feedback. It might not even be in the right sort of, you know, hemisphere of what we, we want right. to or, or we'll be able to do, but so, there's going to be something good in there. Mm -hmm. And then if I say that, all of a sudden, that person is much more likely to want to listen to me, yes. whether it's my feedback, whether it's my or your ideas. advice, whether it's my ideas, because I first was interested enough to listen to them, right? And it happens in both directions. So, yes. so as you said, this isn't, it's, it's just good leadership, right? But when we're talking about different ages, we sometimes don't realize how important that is. So that's the, the third practice of strengthening trust. And then the final one is sort of the culmination. We call it expanding the pie. Mm -hmm. but all that really means is we can accomplish more together than we can individually. So is it possible that intergenerational collaboration could be good for all generations, right? By championing the value that an older and a younger person and everyone in between brings, we're all going to benefit from that, that it's not a win-lose kind of proposition. Right, right. And I like, uh, I like your references in that to interest-based negotiation because that's my background. Yeah. And, and uh, the Harvard, you know, Fisher and Urey and the Harvard uh, negotiation law, uh, negotiation program. And that's where, and, and that's an important point though, is that we can see situations as win-lose and we can see situations as narrow and the idea of expanding the pie and, and focusing on interests for mutual gain opens up, uh, when it goes well, it opens up the conversation and broadens things exactly. and gives you more options and more ideas. And it all ties together because if you're having an effective conversation like that, you're probably building some trust in some relationships. I loved your ask me about idea in there because depending on, I mean, that could be a fun icebreaker, but it could be more, it could be more, um, substantive than just an icebreaker and and you there's so much i think there's so much knowledge resident in people that doesn't come out in any given conversation if you change the conversation you have a chance of getting these things out and then they can be put to use and so resisting assumptions adjusting the lens strengthening trust these things all sort of connect right and weave together in a way that works yeah i mean i love you know as, as we've gone around and talked to different different professionals and different companies. I'm always searching to see how people are either activating this or what's been working for them in, in practice. And so you, you brought up the ask me about exercise from the book. So, you know, it's just like you said, can be a simple, like just letting people know that you have some skill mm -hmm. or, or talent that, mm -hmm. that you'd love to share with them. And like you said, it can be fun. It doesn't have to be work relevant necessarily. But I was talking to someone the other day who uh, we were talking about the idea of uh, mutual mentoring, right? So this idea of, of pairing up people to learn from each other, older and younger. And, and you know, mentoring programs can be really challenging and difficult to get buy-in. And so when you can make it informal, I think that's always a fun way to pilot it. And mm -hmm. so one of the ideas they had, which I, I wanted to share, was creating like a, a bi-weekly lunch and learn mm -hmm. where they just would randomly choose two or three people from their staff who were going to present sort of a skill or talent. And so it wasn't age specific because it was a random selection. Yeah. So in doing that, like it was kind of right now, we all need lots of like team team building and bonding, whether it's happening in person or over Zoom or whatever people are doing. But people are kind of wanting to bring back that, that mm -hmm. cohesion mm -hmm. and, and those kinds of things. And so they said it was really fun because 
it was normalizing that of course we can learn from anyone right it wasn't sort of hauling out their senior people as the sage and and only people that can be teaching or often we we course correct too much the other direction and are sort of you know bringing out our youngest people as the people we all need to learn from when in fact both of those things are true mm-hmm. and everywhere in between so i thought that was really fun you know just sort of setting up this program where we're going to learn from each other because knowledge can come from anywhere um, i love that idea well and then you could learn something about someone that actually you, you would have no way of anticipating could be task or project related so I might learn yeah, something and, about you and say, Megan, we're going to talk afterward because we're having this problem on the project that something you said made me think, right? That's going to emerge from these conversations, which is part of the beauty and the power of them. And you don't get at right. that stuff without those conversations. Well, and what it does too, right, is it helps us break down our 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 go-to if we don't have those kinds of interactions. Yeah, that's a good point. Is we revert to people as sort of caricatures or stereotypes. Right. It's way easier to say, OK, boomer to the 68 year old yeah, yeah, yeah. person in my yeah. office behind their back if I don't know them. But yep, if I exactly. hear them share this exactly. amazing experience they've had or this amazing talent they have that I, I have that talent or passion or interest as well. You know, that's, of course, we know through all the great work in diversity and inclusion that, that you replace stereotypes with personal connections. And then we don't have to use, you know, a, a stereotype or a bias as a shortcut because we don't have anything else to replace it. And so by replacing those generalizations of what does it mean to be a millennial? Well, it was very easy for me to replace my stereotypes about millennials or Gen Z's because I work with them every single day, right? right? I'm, I'm around right. that age group every day and I see countless examples right. of them not fitting those stereotypes at all. And yeah. so that's easy for me, but not everybody interacts on that level with people in such different age groups than them. And, and that interaction gives you the opportunity to replace the stereotype, the assumption, the bias with a person and, and, and yes. to go, okay, this is, this is, and then you have a relationship with a person, which is where we want to be, whether it's two people in a, as a couple or whether it's, you know, five or seven on a team, you get more out of yourself and each other when, when you get to that point. And it's not very far to get to really, it's not hard to get to. Some of the things you're talking no. about are really straightforward, very doable, don't require any special knowledge or skill or expertise it isn't like you got to go learn coding did you just have it it's just another way of having a conversation it's maybe a different question to ask or a different device to use you could use the ask me about as a device but it works when it surfaces these kinds of things none of this stuff is very difficult the show being about getting on the same page i have a working definition of getting on the same page which i i call it a working definition because i'm still working on it i think it leaves some things out but i tried to get the idea down to something that was very granular and essential, agreeing to take the next step together. So it's very small in scope. It's not very grand. It's not like we're on the same page and people have had experiences of real alignment, esprit de corps. People have had experiences of being on a team that just gelled, right? You you hear different, you hear certain words, come together in sync, um, on the same wavelength. And there's a feeling that goes with that that's very, really is very palpable. I think that's being on the same page too, but because that seemed 
not so operational. <laughs> I was like, well, what, what would it be? What would it mean? And I came up with agreeing to take the next step together because what I what I find in my work as a consultant in organizations over the years is people are in some situation and they're working together and they're not sure what next step to take together or they don't agree what next step to take together. And if they can't agree, even if the next step, Megan, is provisional, it could be to test something, right? To pilot or uh, simulate something just to see what you learn and come back and, and talk about the additional information. You're on the same page for that activity. Regardless, you can re- react to the definition, but we're talking a lot about, I think you've written a lot about getting on the same page without necessarily talking about getting on the same page, but just what are your, what are your thoughts on intelligence and getting on the same page? I think it's what happens when we get sort of moved from this idea of tension or, or mm-hmm competition to Mm -hmm. one of collaboration. So to me, it's really what we're trying to do in those second two practices Mm -hmm. where it's all about shared mission, right? To the same page to me means we're both, we're all pointed in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And when we can understand that, then it allows us to kind of lower our defenses and say, oh, well, if you're heading the same place I'm heading, then I would love to hear your idea of how to get there. Maybe my idea is not working, right? Or I I would love to know more about your thoughts, your tools. It's less threatening to me because I'm still going to end up where I want to go. And so to me, getting on the same page is is looking at at each other in the, you know, looking in the same direction as each other. And I Mm -hmm. think that is is so critical um, to getting on the the same page. And I, I also think, it's, it's sort of the, the mantra of intelligence is that every generation has something to teach and something to learn. So mm-hmm. if we just remembered that, then I don't have to know everything. And I also am more than, you know, capable or, or valuable in terms of having something to teach. And I, I feel like that's the same page I would want everybody to get on and to have organizations sort of normalize that in their culture. That concludes the first of two episodes Megan and I recorded. Join us next week when we discuss Megan's definition of getting on the same page for Gentelligence, Gentelligence and organizational culture, the fascinating impact of digitization on generations in the workplace. And here's a bonus. Megan calls me out for an age bias comment I made, which completely escaped me when I said it. You'll love it. I did. I did.